0: Hello Radio World, this is Hazy. You are listening to CITR 101.9 FM.
1: Broadcasting Vancouver's Haziest since 1950.
0: I'm
2: Hello and welcome, everyone. This is the Arts Report on CITR 11.9 FM. I'm Jake Clark, broadcasting from the unceded territory of, unceded Musqueam territory, excuse me, that's very relevant, uh, of UBC's Point Grey campus. And today we actually have two special guests uh, coming in. The first of which is Corey Payette, the uh, author of, a author, songwriter, theatrical impresario of uh, Le Fil du Roy. Le feel du Roy? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Le oh my good God, he's on air. I <laughs> am uh Yep, just waiting there on deck patiently for me to figure out how phones work. Um good. how are you doing, Corey? I'm
1: good. How are you? It's nice to
2: be here. Hey, it's it's a pleasure to have you. You've done some very impressive work recently, actually. We were really psyched to have you on the show. And Le feel du Roy, that's it, it it's an interesting concept. And I was kind of wondering if you could unpack that, because it's a trilingual musical about Canadian history. And that right there is an impressive pitch to carry.
1: Well, I think for us it was important to unpack some of the histories that we've been told that are mostly through the colonial perspective, the perspective of the, the people who were who in the positions of power at the time. And so what we're looking to do is to flip that around and, and look at the stories through the eyes of the indigenous people who were on the land at the time, uh, the, the Mohawk people who were tra- fur traders in that area at the time and speaking Ghani and Geha, that's the dialect of Mohawk that we used in the show, and then to see what that what that experience would have been like for people to to be living their lives, and then all of a sudden this the group of young women from France arrive on these big ships, and what that that what that relationship would have been, and then also to then see it through the eyes of those women who were coming over from from France to this new world, and what courage it would have taken to be able to to go on that journey for months and months and months, and then start a new life here in what we now know as Canada. So. For us, the way into that story was through these three languages—English, uh, French, and Ganin and, and it's, it's been a really exciting process.
2: And le, the if de way, that's the the daughters of the king is the literal translation, mm-hmm. right? The the, the brides yeah. of France, I think, is also what we were. I'm I'm trying to remember my my Canadian history. Um, yeah,
1: it was a, it was a program that was started. Um, it, by the, the King of France in, in 1665, they sent over. Well, it's actually 1663, and they sent over hundreds and hundreds of women to to come to New France and all sorts of parts of Eastern Canada to begin to settle settle the area. And uh, and actually, just yesterday there was an article published in a in a, a Montreal newspaper that talked about that there are over nine million uh canadians who are descendants of Les de Rois. so i think that the connections that people have to this history some people know about them and then i think a lot of people just don't know that they're descendants of these of these early um like or these women who who went on this incredible journey across the, the ocean
2: and it's very interesting to me that these because these are both perspectives that are pretty overlooked, that they're part of history, but I can't recall off the top of my head any uh, anecdote from their perspective. And that's very interesting to me because a lot of the time I think about how Canadians handle our history, because there was a film that recently came out called Hoshelaga, Um and that was by the same director as 32 short films about Glenn Gould. And that was sort of a magical realist kind of it's kind of a fantasia on the history of, well, that that settlement, probably dealing in some part around the same period of time. And that was very interesting to me because we, we know our own history to a degree. But even then, it, it sometimes to me feels like Canadians know American history better than Canadian history and that we, in terms of our culture, maybe don't do as good of a job at preserving it or at least maintaining the narratives that... For example, the Americans do, even though there are many similar and there are many similar and also many disparate narratives involved there. Is there any uh, uh, and this is one of the stories to me that really needs to be told because it is it's part of that history. We hear about the Brides of France, but we don't we don't hear about that interaction like it's we know what it conceptually is. Is there any other story for you or is there any aspect to this story that you think is just needs to be known specifically like something that drives you to tell this story?
1: Well, I think that for, for us, so I'm am I'm the, the co-book and lyricist uh, alongside Julie McIsaac. and so Julie McIsaac is a, a, a brilliant playwright and lyricist, and she and I uh, created like the story of the show and, and wrote all the lyrics together. I, I directed the production, and I'm also the composer of all the music in the show. Um, but the 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 idea that we were going at it from, and you're exactly right that because there is only it's been so focused on one sort of side of the story that is that is very much uh, a, a white male perspective of this history, you know, very educated perspective of like at the time, right? That, that it's like an academic historical uh, view of these events. And so really in, in the years that it took for us to research this show, we've been writing it now for for over three years, and we've encountered very little... Uh, concrete information uh, from the perspective of these young women, or from the perspective of the Indigenous people who were on the land at the time. And so that's really frustrating for us, because we want to find the the material that is, you know, the dramatic content, the stories from these these people's perspectives that we're trying to highlight. But it just doesn't exist. I think we found one letter that was from a perspective of a Fi and it was, and it was like it could have been forged. Like it wasn't like a it wasn't like a concrete it wasn't like a concrete account. And so, in 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 fact, a lot of what we've had to do has been to retrace the steps, both by going on many many um, trips to this area of of um, the like southern Quebec, sort of uh, eastern Ontario, that is around Aquisafnay, uh That's a reserve that borders. Ontario, Quebec, and New York State, and basically spending time in that community with Mohawk people talking about the, the language, learning the language, learning the Ghani'an language, starting to unpack some of the worldview and complexities of that language and what it can tell us about some of the historical people of the time when, when people were speaking this language uh, all the time. I think that, that through that, We've been able to find character through that. We've been able to find like perspective that, that wasn't in a in a textbook or in, in like a you know historical document uh, from the time, but that through other ways like language, it's been a really great um, it's been a really great way into the story from the perspective of these of these people. So um, like for example, my my great grandmother. Uh, she, her first language was Ghanaian Geha. So she moved to Northern Ontario from uh, this, this uh, she called it Nwago, which is an area of Indigenous territories just around Montreal. And so retracing that language and speaking that language with Ghanaian Geha speakers in Akwesasne, it's like I found such a deeply rooted connection to my own ancestors and to, because there's only two generations between us. It's like my Mamer and my father, they they both lost the language, they don't speak it. But then now I'm part of this generation that is reclaiming language and that is finding a way, even though we don't have all of the the information and the history written down, but finding a way through that language reclamation to also uh, reclaim culture, to reclaim histories, and to reclaim a sense of, of voice and agency that our ancestors must have had at the time. And so that's, I think, that's, I think, a part of our work as as theater creators is about is about finding our way through in whatever way we can to get to the truth of that story.
2: And now that's very interesting, especially considering your your last work, which was a musical, The Children of God, which mm-hmm. concerned residential schools. And this is what stuck with me from that was that I saw this a little bit ago. I remember what stuck with me. Though was that in the residential schools because there there was a deliberate attempt to to, to well they, they 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 literally said kill the Indian save the child, and the the priest in that one I recall referred to the language involved and that was um, Ojibwe Cree I think I, I I'm, yeah, I'm Ojibwe. yeah
1: Ojibwe yeah there's Ojibwe in the piece and also Cree in the piece
2: yeah I'm I'm sorry I didn't I didn't recall the specific no no yeah one, but uh, it refers to it as gibberish and that was mm-hmm. very interesting because there was this strong theme of communication there and if you lose the language for something, what else do you lose? Like it's a very yeah. stepparity question a little bit.
1: Yeah. Well I think that, that, that is a huge that is a huge part of it. I and mean, I think I think a lot of what we hear today about language reclamation is that these languages are being lost and that they're languages that that you know that are already lost, right? And what we have come to realize through this work of 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 translating and working with the Native American Traveling College on the Acwesasne that we, uh, on that's, that's the Genin Geha that we that we the Mohawk dialect that we use in the piece is that they have been doing this work for decades. Like they, it is not a dying language. It is a language that they are actively holding to and and nurturing and is becoming, uh, is evolving as a language. Like very young people who are picking it up are uh, reshaping that language so that it's, it's, it's something that is alive and, and responding to the cultures of today. And so it has been a fascinating experience and one that's actually hard to put into words because it isn't through this like an English and, and sort of Western cultural perspective it's really something that is so that, that the culture is embedded in the language, that the worldview of the people is embedded in the language. It, the complexities of the Geha language, it's. It took you know, us, our company, we we all flew across the country to to go and learn some of the language, and what we discovered in doing that work was like, oh, we're not just we're not just speaking these words. It's not just about speaking the the text in the way that we speak English, it's that that text holds with it an entire world view that I think a lot of people don't quite understand until you start to learn that language and start to pick it up and then you realize, wow, this actually holds a great deal of teaching within it. And so for us, holding that Mohawk language up in an equal sort of um, musical with English and French is incredibly satisfying and I hope that an audience when they receive it will sort of think back to maybe Children of God or other shows that kind of that, that really explore that whitewashing and to show that we still have this language we still have this culture and and we need to celebrate that and the fact that we could do something like this is a great example of how much we have overcome and how much we can still do
2: As you were learning language, I got to ask, like when when you learn a language that you yourself were not familiar with from maybe from the get-go or had fallen out of place, is there a behavioral change for you? Did you notice any sort of change to your lifestyle or to your demeanor during it, like sort of inheriting culture along with the language?
0: Well,
1: we worked with Yawenda Mabel White, who's a Ghanaian Geha speaker, who works at the Native American Traveling College. And working with her, she's 70 years old. She is. Her first language is and Geha, and she spoke to us. She would. She was always cracking up, and she was laughing at how terrible we were. Like you can't just pick up a language in a short amount of time. The languages you're take flashman. so so long to 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 you know actually be, become uh, like in your mouth and in your in your way of speaking. But for me, it was it was inspiring to see how much joy it brought to her and to the whole community the fact that it was like that there are these people from Vancouver who are doing this musical using this language and it's exactly contributing to the work that they're already doing. You know? And so for them, we had a, we had a public reading, so we, we shared the show with their community, and, and they, they made us food, and we had, we had a, a conversation afterwards about the show and different things that perhaps we had missed or changes that should happen and all this. And it was, it was it, that relationship. So what changed, you know, getting back to your question, is just that there was a relationship that formed. There was a relationship and a connection to the people and the language that I think will stay, will stay with this whole company for a very, very long time, and will stay with the show. And we hope that the audience who comes to see it will also feel that connection.
2: And all right, that's that's pretty impressive. It's a pretty impressive statement. and I wish you the best with it. Where could that's we? Awesome. Where and when can we hypothetically see this if we're aiming to go?
1: Well, we're at the York Theatre again, so the same theatre that you came to see, Children of God, at on Commercial Drive. Um, and so the show is, it, it runs May 15th through the 27th. On, fifth, on the May 15th and 16th, those are previews. So those tickets are $20. So it's a, if, if there are any restrictions that people have for their finances or things like that, every ticket in the house is $20. And then we also have a pay what you can performance that's on May 19th in the afternoon. It's like, whatever, whatever you can afford is like, we're happy to, to sort of have as many people come up for that. We also have an ASL performance. So for that, for that show on the Sunday on May 20th, uh, it will actually be, the show will be in four languages. So we'll have English, French, Genese, and ASL interpretation. So it's, it's we have all sorts of, of uh, different activities that are happening around, around the work, including talkbacks and all sorts of things. So um, it's running May 15th to May 27th at the York Theatre. People can buy tickets at com. So um, we really hope that people will come out and, and support this uniquely Canadian work.
2: Yeah, I, I hope so too. And I just, when, when I heard about this, I figured this is something that is just. One, amazingly impressive to put together because a trilingual musical about Canadian history is not something you hear about very often, and it's something I think we do kind of need because I, I think you know there's... Well, it's huge.
1: It's huge. The cast we have we have uh, fifteen performers on stage, a cast of eleven with six, six uh, a women's chorus of six, and and yeah, it's just like it, it, so far what people have been describing it is is like it's an epic storytelling, you know. It's it, it grand in, in the best way possible. So hopefully anyone who likes children of God or if that reached people and they like the music from that, you know, Les de roi is a really great um, a chance to kind of deepen that experience and have a different sort of take on on this, this history.
2: Mm-hmm. And the mu- music sort of it for, for those who may have seen it, it's music is sort of sort of a dark, folky, baroque kind of thing, would you say? Sure. I, I don't, I, don't, I it's sort of like, I have a very specific sound to my
1: music um, and, and I don't, I, that I'm perfectly happy with that description, but also, you know, it, 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 it's it's an orchestra of, of a piano, a violin, viola, mm. and cello. Some really so really
2: strings. It, it,
1: yeah, very much, very much strings. And then as well, we have, of course, drumming and, and, you know, some indigenous sort of contemporary indigenous music. So it's, it's an exciting
2: blend of of cultures and, and musical styles. All right. Excellent. So Thanks can... so much, Jake. Hey, it was great to talk to you, Corey. Break a leg. Awesome. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Cheers. All right. That was uh, a, the fantastic Corey Payette about Le Fille du Roi. You know, you know, I did used to live in Quebec, but my pronunciation was, I guess, never that good. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Check that out if you can. You know, we get there has been a trend in historical musicals lately, I think. And that's definitely got to be something, you know, we owe it to that. Well, you know what? The Americans saw fit to give Andrew Jackson a musical. So this is, you know, sort of the least we can do regarding our cultural figures. I got to think about that, because like, I've been thinking about Canadian history a lot recently, because uh, recently I've been sort of plowing through Chester Brown's oeuvre and Louis Riel is his most famous thing. And this is the thing. Louis Riel is a figure very cited as one of the most famous Canadian historical figures. I remember hearing about him maybe once or twice in high school, not once in university. And well that that's the courses I took actually. I can't blame that on UBC. But I think that we need to become more familiar with our own history. I think we need to be able to tell those stories because you know that's that's what that's what makes this country to an extent what it is and what will allow it to become something so i think that's kind of what we owe to it and with that we'll have these messages (laughs) and uh we shall return with more delightful fun in a minute i'm your host jake clark and uh enjoy the psa
0: allow me to tell you about unceded airways what's that isn't that some kind
2: of indigenous radio show
0: it sure is. Mm-hmm. Tell me, are you down for decolonization? Yeah.
2: What? I certainly wish I could hear about indigenous issues, people, and yeah. events on the radio. You're in luck, because Unseated Airwaves talks about all these things and more yeah. every Monday morning at 11. Music from indigenous mm-hmm. artists and coverage yeah. of all the hot happenings in indigenous art mm-hmm. and entertainment.
0: i citr C-I-T-R-101.9-F-L. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And they broadcast
2: all this from the traditional Mm -hmm. ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam people? Find out for yourself Mm -hmm. Monday mornings at 11 or find episodes online at Mm citr.ca. Today we're joined in the studio by the Cedar Program Youth. Where you are. Hey bro, I was kind of thinking that I might want to write like stuff for a magazine, dude. You know you can do that at CITR and Discorder, right? What? Yeah, you can review live shows where you get in for free, or music and books and stuff that's coming out, or do write-ups on artists and local issues for Discorder magazine. That's sick, bro. Yeah, just email volunteer at citr.ca and they can help you get started or just come into the station whenever. Dude, I totally will. Discorder Magazine has been supporting local music
1: for over 30 years. Thanks to the long-term support of the Rickshaw Theatre, Discorder lives.
2: Your favorite bands are playing at the Rickshaw Theatre. Check out their calendar just behind the cover of Discorder Magazine or at rickshawtheater.com. Hello and welcome back. Short hiatus there. Uh, and, well, I'm still here. I'm still Jake Clark. we still broadcasting from the unceded, still broadcasting from the unseated Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. Um, now, um, we were, um, before uh, we carry on, I kind of want to shout out um, Dave Allen's al- uh, new album. Dave Allen is uh, an Ontario uh, musician Formerly of the Stone Trotters, Uh, he recently released an album called "When the Demons Come." Um, You may hear a little bit of that uh, later. Uh, And um, uh, I realize I keep doing that. It's 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 pretty good. It's been like the press release uh, compares it to uh, the band uh, Bill Withers and Harry Nilsson. I think. The band, yes. Uh, I think there's more Jason Isbell in it than Harry Nilsson or Bill Withers, but that's um, your mileage may vary on that one. You may hear a little more of that as we go on. Uh, and before uh, anything else, I want to uh, have this shout out here Staggers and Jags. If you ever heard of them, they are a Vancouver based group. They are kind of delightful, and they will be doing a concert at the Fox. On, if my uh, information is correct, yes, my information is correct. It is the seventeenth, and uh, it is uh, for their second album, "Garbage Party," with funk punk soul band Devil in the Wood Shack and the Swingin' Milk Crate Bandits. Uh, Swingin' isn't in the name, by the way. It's just the Milk Crate Bandits. But the Swingin' Milk Crate Bandits, like, would I, I think that would actually help a little more uh they are a vancouver sextet they are um they sort of got a bit of a retro sound you know with a little bit of uh, a little bit of gypsy swing freak folk um a little bit of like sort of uh maybe a little benjamin bookery type of uh punkish blues in there um it's basically sort of kind of a um, a mix of retro jazz act like if you, if you like, maybe Postmodern Jukebox might be worth uh, worth a shot, like sort of. A, not exactly down that road, but close to it. It's been described as soul music for cretins by the Vancouver Sun. Um, we're going to see if we can uh, get you one of the songs next show. But uh, yeah, so check that out, you know. Uh, maybe pick up some tickets. Maybe the tickets are $12 at Zulu Records or Red Cat Records uh, and $15 at the door. Um, and today is actually kind of special for us because it is the debut of our uh, Ask a Smart Alec segment. Um, and the thing is that when I checked the Facebook page uh, for a comment on it, uh, we had nothing there. Um, and I'm not sure that's a technical problem. You know, poor Carpenter blames his tools. But. Um, we're, I'm sort of, I sort of got hands up here, so I'm just gonna kind of go off on this one. Uh, there's some things I've been thinking about recently. Some are more related to the arts than not, but you know, it's it, it's a culture thing. And uh, the first of those things, so I'm I'm not gonna go in any particular hierarchical order, just sort of the degree I've been um, they've been coming to me. The first is super mainstream by comparison to what I've been talking about is the new, uh, new post Malone album. Uh, So post Malone is a strange figure uh, to me. Uh, And I mentioned a couple shows ago before in that particular tangent that I don't really get trap music. I don't really get that trend. And that's a trend post Malone is definitely riding on. He's definitely uh, co-opting on that. I don't think he's been doing it particularly gracefully, um, I will say in the interviews he seems like a chummy guy, but that you know again, that that doesn't necessarily mean it's warranted. Uh, Stony as an album, I thought was basically an album of novelty songs. I watched a review of it uh, and then I checked it out, and it, it, it a lot of it was White Iverson, which is a song I just didn't get, just repeated over and over again. Uh, and there were some songs though, uh, Broken Whiskey Glass is the one I'm thinking of, where He sort of has this, he's from Texas, and he's going for this sort of guitar-driven singer-songwriter kind of thing. He was in a metal band before he was famous, and he's a big fan of Bob Dylan. And that goes a lot of weird ways to get him where he is. So when this guy releases an album called "Beer Bongs and Bentleys, which is what he did, that's what the album's called, uh, I was not expecting a lot. Um, I wasn't expecting anything, actually, because just saying the phrase beer bongs and Bentleys, that just sounds like the Chainsmokers to-do list. Uh, but the thing is, I checked this album out. Um, it's not all good. It's it's not, a, it's not a classic, but it was surprisingly good. Like, I, I will say surprisingly good in that I didn't expect it to be good. Like, Stoney was a slog of things that sounded the same. Um, and the thing about beer bongs mentally is I could tell the tracks apart. Like that's what I'll say about him. And some of the songs were actually kind of, kind of catchy. Definitely sort of, sort of trashy. I would say that the aesthetic on the album is sort of this trashy singer songwriter thing. A lot of these are, you know, my girl left me kind of ballads. Um, but because he's doing this in a sort of trap format, and again, it's not an aesthetic I really vibe or I understand that much. But the idea is that there's a certain degree of swagger to it and there's a certain degree of as with Post Malone a lot of chemical alteration. The opening track on the album is Paranoid uh, which has an Edward Snowden reference um, I actually liked The second track is called Spoil My Night with one of the idiots from Race Sremert on it uh, and um, the, the, the song has a really catchy but also really trashy vocal harmony on it And so, there's a couple things that are weird. In one of them, there is literally a line: "She wanna rock with me like Jumanji." It it was, it's, and then post also um, says he uses boobies in a lyric to describe. uh, And like, I, I, I get annoyed when people rhyme girl with world, but it was just baffling to hear the word. Boobies, which sounds unnatural for me to say, in in a song that you had to think about, that you had to think about recording, and then just put on there, and then to actually do that with one of the the, the better vocal harmonies I've heard from this sort of depression pop genre in a while. Um, so yeah, that was weird. And there were other songs on it that honestly, like I, I, I haven't really re-listened to it because it, it's not that good. It's not terrible. Um, like uh, when Big Fish Theory came out, I liked that one for how weird it was, like how really weird it was. And to compare Vince Staples and Post Malone, that that's really, really not fair to Vince Staples. But um, I think that. Uh, Again, the album's called Beer Bongs and Bentleys. It, what this strikes me as is an immature record in a lot of ways, uh, not just because of the lyrics I mentioned, just tone in general. Um, and that I think Post Malone's persona, if it if it follows through, could actually be pretty endearing. But it was interesting to me to see how that went, because like um, the Chainsmokers have a song out right now called Sick Boy. Where, by the way, Sick Boy is one of my favorite fictional characters of all time from Train Spotting, uh, and the man—they're going for that darker sophomore album. Uh, and what I realized from that was that we've gotten to a real point—this real point of a pop music, I think, and a lot of popular culture. And I'm not saying pop music is bad because. No, it's, it's never better or worse than it has been before. It's, it's different, and that'll be the case. Um, but the thing is that the aesthetic is catering more to these really dark soundscapes, these really dark lyrics. And because of that, I think that popular culture, uh, in a lot of ways, possesses a greater capacity for self-reflexivity, a greater capacity for, uh, self-pity and self-hatred, uh, along with greater ability to revel in these situations and deny them. That's a main difference, I would say, between the popular music of now and the arguably similar trend in the early, the early 90s and then the early 2000s, um, with, with, uh, with grunge and, and gangster rap and then, and then in the early 2000s, new metal. Um, neither of which I would call my favorite genres, neither of which I would say I know that much about. I actively dislike new metal a lot. I just, I just don't like the sound of it. Uh, and uh, when I think about where that is going, where we're going with angst right now, I, I think it's very interesting because there is a growing recognition of the ability to circumnavigate pain and also to realize that Pain, guilt, and regret can endure past efforts to the contrary. And that is a depth of maturity, depending on how it's handled, and also a depth of habituation. Which brings me to Alec Manassian. Yeah, yeah, this went there. So Alec Manassian, for those unaware, uh, is the guy in Toronto who drove a van, hit a bunch of people, tried to kill a bunch of people, uh, got out of the van, wanted cops to shoot him. They didn't. And did that because he refers to himself as an incel, involuntarily celibate. And he did this, essentially, the the way this is categorized and the way he seems, at least in part, to have identified himself, I don't know if he was in his right mind when he did this, it is possible that he may not have been in his right mind for a while, was that he did this because he was an incel. Now... For me, this one, the thing is that this is not new to me because I've been keeping track of these online communities, Meninist online communities for a while. I, I've had a real, they just irritate me on a foundational level. And because this is the thing, I, I, I recognize where the pain and resentment they have comes from. I do. It's my demographic they're aiming at. And I am going to say right now that I've never believed it. That's that's one of few... And I can say that with complete honesty. I've hitched my wagon to a few really stupid ideas, but never this one. And the reason I've been looking into that, I was looking into this for a while, is because to me it seems like a joke. It seems like an easy joke. And I'm a comic. That's, that's what I do. So... I look into this and I realize very quickly, like this is what I realized over three years ago, was that the joke is not only too easy, it's, it's too pathetic to make. And the reason why it is that way is because a lot of this is categorized. On both sides, but especially, especially the incel community, especially the surrounding communities, there is a brutal tendency to categorize people, categorize actual people, and disregard the agency of human beings. So, essentially, this goes back to me, because this is not the first time this has happened uh the uh, one thing that will be mentioned a lot and has been mentioned a lot already is Elliot Roger. Elliot Roger was a man in Santa Barbara, California, I believe. Uh who now this is American, so he had a car, but he also had a knife and a whole bunch of guns. And he killed, I think, about six people, wounded ten more, tried to shoot up a sorority, he failed to do that, and just went down the, the road, and he I think he checked himself out. Um he had a manifesto that was posted online. Um and when I start, I, this was what showed me how pathetic this was because I wanted to do a stand up routine on this guy. I figured that, you know, you punch up and if you've killed people, if you've killed people for this reason, if you've killed people for really most reasons, maybe any reason, you invite that kind of target to yourself. When you've killed innocent people, no, no, you've, you've, you've exhausted the capacity for pity. But when I looked at this, this is the thing, you realize how vividly pathetic it is. Like it's pathetic in a way you can't ignore. There's this core of isolation and pain that everyone has the capacity to experience. And the sad thing, the saddest thing I realized from this is that the only difference between feeling this and doing that and feeling this and turning it into something else is a frame of reference. The reason this community lives and has lived for so long is because that frame of reference, the frame of reference they've in part created, the frame of reference in part from the fact that they're dealing with the cultural equivalent of having bought a jalopy and getting mad about not being able to drag race with it, is where they're at. Members of this community, um, you could call it the red pill community, you could call it the MGTOW community, but that, again, both of those things, you're near the target, but you're not on it. And you can say that there's these self-affirming systems. And the thing about incels, the incel community, I, I really don't like this term, but this is the term that is going to be used, So it, it, just for clarity. There's this adherence to what Manassian put on his post were chads and stacys. So these guys essentially believe that there are chads who are wealthy slash handsome or both men who have sex with all attractive women who are stacys, arguably all women, according to this. And all people fall into these categories to the exclusion of all other human characteristics. And because of that, there's this feeling of victimization. This feeling that they are cut out of it. And these forums, some of the forums here, I haven't been on a lot of these. I've only read about it because I don't have the energy to do it. I don't have the psychological energy to put myself through that. Basically, the few I've been able to stomach, this is just these deeply resentful, deeply angry, in many cases deeply Impotent, And I mean that psychologically. I can't speak physically, and I won't make a joke about that, (sighs) although I kind of just did. And the defining attribute is this sense of entitlement is a phrase you're going to hear a lot, but it's true, and this desire for restitution, for something that you can't give restitution for. You can't say it's deserved. Because the thing is about John Barrymore had a great line about sex. Sex is something people think about for 90% of the time and spend 1% of the time actually doing. And I think his figures are optimistic in that respect. And you can't think about it that much, maybe. Maybe that's not a right thing. Maybe that's not the correct thing to do. And if you're in this case of extreme isolation and extreme pain, you probably shouldn't. You should probably have better ways to distract yourself. But that's not a solution. The thing that struck me the most about this is the sense of infectious loneliness and pain. And there's – so there's an article out there called Radicalizing the Romanceless, which is a really terrible title right now, really is. But when you have that idea, it's this article, which is, I think, it's a, it's a well-intentioned attempt to – this was not – this was written a, lo- a while ago – I think it was even before Elliot Roger, is an attempt it's by a guy, I think he's a medical professional, I'm pretty sure he's American to deal with this and his example is that feeling this does not necessarily mean a desire to hurt people it means there's a notion, a perception of an injustice, which I think is facile but his argument there is that this perception is something that does not benefit from being persecuted. And here's the thing. Alec Manassian deserves every bit of abuse he gets. Like, I'm going to put that out there right now. He killed innocent people. He's gone, no, you don't don't deserve pity after you take the lives of innocents. You don't. There's no excuse for that. You can argue that, if you can argue that there's no, I, I can, to an extent, argue that there's no moral value to murder at all. And the only thing stopping me from that is the premise of justification, which is also the premise of, un, uh, is also the premise that there is no innocence. So if you take the lives of innocent people, you deserve anything and everything the universe throws at you. Now, that said, the thing that is most alarming when you when this comes around is that people have rallied around this, as people rallied around Elliot Rogers, as people rallied around people who did violence towards this, because. There is this notion of resentment, revenge, and restitution. We'll call it the three R's. wonder if anyone else has gotten onto that. <sighs> Which brings us to Charles Guiteau. Now, this is a bit of a weird anecdote, and it kind of disproves my earlier point about American history, but it's relevant. Charles Guiteau was a man who was born into, well, he was born into a cult, effectively was what it was, and I think it was in the early 1800s. Uh, it was a free love cult, Uh, Despite that, Charles was a rather, shall we say, unpleasant, probably mentally ill man. Um, No, those two things are not correlated. But he basically, the joke about him is that he couldn't get laid in a sex cult. Uh, He left the cult or was forced out. Uh, He became, among other things, a newspaper publisher and a politician. He was a roundabout failure in all of these. He joined the Republican Party. Uh, this would have been shortly after Lincoln, I believe. Oh no, it would have been during was it during when it was this was when Grant was president. And he gave a speech in favor of Garfield, who became president. No, no, not he, he wasn't speaking against OD here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The dollop made this same joke. Anyway, uh Garfield uh became president. Charles Gateau gave it was only allowed to give a speech to 12 to 12, I, I believe it was Free freed slaves. So he was just they told him to give a speech to a group of people they cared the least about, because this was that point in American history. And that was the way you, you dealt with the politically minded uh, people who in the age before message boards. So uh, Guiteau, Guiteau became convinced that this speech won the election for Garfield, sent a lot of letters, annoyed a lot of people. Uh, Guiteau was never recognized for them because he didn't do anything. But it is worth noting at the time, Guiteau did what he's fam- most famous for. He had probably hadn't spoken to someone who liked him in twenty years. He probably hadn't had he probably hadn't slept with anyone he didn't pay. He probably never lived with anyone who could stand him. He was married; it ended very badly. And yeah, I, I still hold my original assumption. By the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think he. Th- th- I think if this is correct, he gave himself syphilis in order to give his wife syphilis. This is the lamentable state he was working on. And then he uh, he bought a revolver and he shot President Garfield while he was waiting for a train. Uh, Garfield actually died because the surgeons didn't wash their hands. Uh, he would have survived if he was left alone because the bullet lodged assist in his back, but he died. Guiteau was tried. Uh, he tried to purloin a presidential pardon from the vice president, claiming he got him a promotion, which technically he did, but fuck. And he uh, he argued loudly with his own lawyers when they tried to get him acquitted for insanity. Not acquitted, sorry, but ameliorated. They tried basically tried an insanity plea, and he yelled, I'M NOT CRAZY! Which is a great way to prove you're not crazy. I apologize to those wearing headphones. So then, Guiteau, uh, he was hanged, as, you know, he shot the president. Fair enough. But here's the thing. Gateau was a person who was, and I would say by his own agency, alone. And that isolation drove him... He was probably not all too um, on an even keel before this, and he got worse. Because of what he did. Because he was alone. And isolation... For many, many people, because humans are – and you'll see this argument repeated by many, many people across different degrees of the political spectrum. A lot of people are wired to get engagement from other people, just some kind of engagement. And, and you know, what that's, that's an explanation for why many people are in the radio office I'm in right now, among many other places. And when that kind of engagement doesn't work, and that kind of engagement isn't necessarily sexual, it's communicative, and it's genuine. You can't pay for it. Maybe you can. Depends on how... Depends on a lot of things. When, when you're isolated, when you're alone, and you only have very cheap facsimiles of social contact, it'd be like if you're a man dying of thirst and you're being subjected to Chinese water torture. Now, I do want to mention, however, in this metaphor, there's nothing strapping you to the chair. And this is very important to me because there's no situation I can see where you can blame people, you can necessarily blame people for barring prejudice, barring legitimate social unfairness. I'm talking something that is systematic here, not something that is incidental, where you can blame people for not validating you that way. And that is what drives people like Alec Manassian, people like Elliot Roger, to do what they do, because... They're given an outlet for this pain. They're sitting in this chair having water drip on their head when their throat feels like sandpaper. And then when they realize they can get up out of the chair or when they finally just have the will to do it, they get in a van or they go get a gun or they do a number of things. And this isn't necessarily to say they kill. Most people don't. I don't think most people outside of situations where there's direct threat have the capacity to kill. But when this happens, and this did happen, people think about causes a lot. And that isolation is certainly a cause. And there's a lot of blame on culture. Whether it's the culture that fed him the ideals that became toxic, or whether it's the culture that processed them, or whether it's the culture that just enabled it. There's different arguments for that. I don't buy cultures fully responsible, but to remove it from the equation is, you can't do it. And really, when, you, when we look at this, when we look at this discourse, you can't turn it aside completely. Because isolation, people say there's a loneliness epidemic going on now. And that, to me, seems believable to a degree, at least people in my demographic, at least because many of us are operating in a work climate right now or operating even outside of the professional climate, maybe in a social climate, but I think the professional climate has, to, ha- has a lot to do with it, where you're not given the time and when you're not given, the sp- given necessarily the space to do it, and certainly when you're not given role models. Because things change, and things have been changing very quickly, and that change and those changes have been speeding up remarkably. So looking backward for your role models is dangerous. And it's dangerous because you can get misinformed, and when you get misinformed, you can make missteps. And I'm not saying those missteps are going to be going this way. There's a million other ways to make missteps between here in the Manosphere, let alone where Alec Manassian was at. So this, I want to say... If anyone is listening, if anyone is still listening after this 30-minute siege into something deeply disturbing, that if this pain is there, if you feel it, there there is more than one way. That's all I can tell you. That's all I can tell you because... Well, there's, there's a reason I'm sitting in this studio alone right now. But there is always a choice. Up until the last second, there's always a choice. And I may not know much about a lot. There's a lot I'm teaching myself. There's a lot that I'm trying to learn from other people. And you need to keep moving forward. That's... That is a platitude and a half, but it's true. You can't you can't stick your head in a meat grinder and then complain when you've got a bad haircut. You have to and it, it's it's gonna be hard. It's gonna hurt, maybe more. But you have to you have to change. And you have to be able to keep doing that. You, you can't let yourself hit a dead end. Again, platitude and a half, but that's the truth. It's really all I have to say for this. If I could if I could play you out to something to something good to something related to this, I, I would and I will try. You just I never wanted to look at something like this. I never wanted to see this happening. I never wanted to see this happening. There should be a period at the end of that sentence. But as much as I never wanted to see this happening, I knew I certainly didn't want to see this happening and go, oh, that again. No. 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 So, to you out there, listeners, downloaders... People have stumbled on this by accident. Anybody who's listening, if anybody is, well, carry on. But don't. Don't hit the wall. Cheers.
0: I've seen the water falls and how the sky cracks. I've seen the light of day buried in the rain. I've seen the moon shine high behind the evergreen. I've seen the light of day. darkness it's sin Well here's today And all the troubles it may bring Hidden just like needles in. And here's the fall And how to rise up from it all The I'm throwing yesterday I've heard them playing those summer tunes. I've seen a little piece of heaven in the winds I've seen the moon shine high behind the evergreen I've seen the light of day go dancing in the rain but when that cold air is freezing up your toes chilling. Darkness says Well here's today and all Do you want to voice this one? Yes, I do. Okay. Do you want me to
2: voice it? I can yeah, voice yeah. it. Yeah, please voice That's this the one. the wrong mic. <clears throat> I forgot. You f***ing dip. I can't believe I put up with this. And I asked for a grape soda, you whole Okay. Due to a labor dispute, CITR is missing its star voice actors. That means if you're interested in producing PSAs, advertisements, and various other promotional wonders for airplay on the radio, 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 radio. we need you. Learn how to get involved with CITR's production department and all other facets of volunteering at CITR and Discorder Magazine at CITR.ca. Programming, photography, media training, and more. Plus, we get a guest star in the lounge. No, wait, we, we can't promise that. Can't believe I put up with this.
0: Alright, I'm gonna do it I'm 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 gonna do it wrong. I'm about to spit in this mic like (laughs) freestyle elfin, you know? Okay, okay. Wait, hold on, does this make sense? (laughs) (laughs) No but who cares. Alright, let's go. Finally we (laughs) You're not even gonna last. All right. Victoria's pretty good, not bad festival fountain, just back from France.